Hackensack Meridian Children's Health is comprised of two nationally ranked children's hospitals by U.S. News and World Report and are number one in New Jersey. K. Hafnadian Children's Hospital in Neptune and Joseph M. Sanzari Children's Hospital in Hackensack, as well as pediatric inpatient and outpatient services at JFK University Medical Center in Edison. With access to expert pediatricians and over 200 pediatric specialists across the state, Hackensack Meridian Children's Health prides itself on offering specialized pediatric medical care and surgical expertise. To learn more about Hackensack Meridian Children's Health, visit hackensackmeridianhealth.org kids. My name is Kate Santangelo. Welcome to the Mom with Moms podcast, part of the Mom with Moms network. Listen in as we bring awareness to the best local resources for growing families in Monmouth County, New Jersey, chat with local moms and mompreneurs, highlight our favorite resources, local spots, restaurants, and more. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everyone, to the Mammoth Moms podcast. We are here in um, officially back to school for my daughter, at least. Um, but I think it's back to school week, essentially, in Monmouth County. I've been seeing all friends and family posting different days, but um, all the back to school happenings in the middle of like a heat wave, which is funny because I've been complaining about the weather all summer, about how it was kind of, it was just like a weird weather like summer in my opinion. I don't know. Um, but it's been, it's like so hot and the perfect week to be at the beach and the pool and we're back to school. So funny how that worked out. Um, but we're doing all things back to school. Um, today we are continuing our family health care series, um, with Hackensack Meridian Children's Health. Um, today talking about back to school, everything, right? So uh, your kids being sick, you, you know, the. I thought it was so funny. A friend of mine who um, her kids go to school in Fairhaven, they were um, getting out of the car, get, um, bringing, you know, the kids into school the first day and there was playing. It's the most wonderful time of the year. <laughs> <laughs> the kids, well, for the parents, really, um, which I was dying, I was cracking up. But with that comes um, all the activities, the chaos that ensues, the homework, and also the germs and injuries and everything in between. So, um, our guest today, thank you for joining, is Dr. Melissa C. Wallach. Um, she's been a pediatrician for more than 20 years uh, from Hackensack Meridian Children's Health, board certified in internal medicine and pediatrics. Dr. Wallach sees patients in Neptune and Asbury Park. She is the director of Med medical education at Jersey Shore University Medical Center for the SGU Medical School Program and counts among the many K. Havnanian Children's Hospital pediatricians serving families in our community. She is also uh, the Director of Quality Improvement for the Hackensack Meridian Children's Health Pri um, Pediatric Primary Care Practices. So welcome. Thank you for coming and uh, chatting with us today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me to talk about this important topic or topics, I yeah, should say. Yeah, talk about a lot. We're trying to <laughs> potpourri, <laughs> na na narrow down all the, the fun topics, right, mm -hmm. that, are, um, that are back to school. So um, we'll dive right in. I am... Um, uh, we have a lot of questions about 
illnesses in general, right? When you go back to school, um, everything from strep to flu kind of ensues. Um, the stomach bugs, the those are the worst. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, Definitely I've, for the moms, yeah, cleaning up the stomach bugs. <laughs> oh, my gosh, the worst. Um, I have a fun story about a stomach bug I'll maybe mention later. Um, the, uh, you know, the colds and everything in between. Um, I will say I've noticed recently in the news a little bit more of a prevalence with COVID. I know that um, Rutgers actually in, um, instituted a, a indoor policy for masks for their students and faculty to be to be wearing. Um, so, what are you? You know, you're seeing patients now. I'm sure this is kind of the first week of, that begins of all of the you know the illnesses. What um, what do you normally see like in September? Is it kind of different like every year? I feel like it's different every year, and I definitely think that the pandemic has definitely changed the time of year that we're seeing different um, viruses and bacterial infections. Like you mentioned, strep. We didn't really see strep a lot during the height of the pandemic, and then all of a sudden it came back. And sometimes, you know, they're coming back these bugs at different seasons. Um, you know, slightly off from what we're used to. But in general, now that we're going to be inside more and close together, we have to be conscientious of um, our coughs and our sniffles and the fact that, you know, we are in close proximity and can spread germs to each other. And so you, I know you mentioned the masking. Um, it's interesting because we did away with masks in the office around April. Mm -hmm. um, and at first I even sort of waited a little bit. And then, you know, as summer went on, you know, whether the child was sick or well, just got used to not wearing the mask again. And now that the COVID numbers are starting to climb up, I'm finding that I'm wearing a mask with, for sure, the kids that have fever, coughing and sneezing. And I have a feeling we're going to probably start some of us to wear the masks more when we're in direct patient care. Because remember, in addition to seeing the sick kids that come, I'm seeing all the newborns that come right out of the hospital. And I don't want to be responsible for getting one Spreading, of those babies yeah, sick, sure. right? So, Absolutely. So, yeah. Um, so, uh, I also read that there is a new booster for the, I guess there's a different strain of COVID. Is that is that coming out soon? So that's a very good good question. So we're waiting for that. Um, it, it So they have been, the big companies have been working on a vaccine to prevent subvariants of Omicron. Um, and they are saying that they are projecting that even though I think it was possibly made prior to the the most recent one that you might read about today, like there's all different letters of the alphabet. There's E, E7, eight, sorry, yeah, or, you know, Iris, and um, and then there's like the it's XBBs. Like the yeah, yeah, it's Name like the hurricanes. Yeah, it's like the hurricanes. <laughs> like each one gets a different letter, like the Greek alphabet. Um, this time the Greek alphabet instead of the, the um, traditional um, alphabet. But, um, but in any event, they're, they're projecting that it probably the middle to the end of this month. And I don't know then from once the approvals come, how long it'll take to actually have in offices. And, um, but, but it will be a one-time dose for um, the, for at least for the older, for the older kids and um, young and, and adults. adults. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Um, I also noticed, I guess maybe last year, is it last year that there was such, there was a much uh, prevalence of RSV. Um, I, and maybe I'm off on that, maybe I just knew people that had it more, um, but I've just saw more about it. Um, I know that babies get RSV a lot and I don't know why that is. My kids have never had RSV. Um, so what, it's a virus. Yes. So um, it stands for respiratory syncytial virus. That's what RSV stands for. And it is a virus that um, anyone can get. But when um, younger children, really infants, especially premature babies, as well as over 65-year-olds, 
of age are, you know, the extreme ends of age are more at risk for having higher um, complication in the lower respiratory tract requiring hospitalization. And so um, in the past, there was a uh, monoclonal antibody called Synergist that was out, polyviximab, and um, it was given to very um, particular criteria in the neonatal ICU before they would leave the hospital. And sometimes they would have to, um, they would need to be continued dosing throughout the entire RSB season, which traditionally was from October to April. Mm -hmm. And we're projecting it'll still, it'll go back to that. Although again, like I was mentioning earlier, COVID did kind of make things, um, you know, a little different where we we were seeing RSV earlier, like than we normally did, like prior to the fall, and extending later, later past April too. So, but hopefully now it'll go back to its traditional time of year, which is usually um, October to to April. And so um, there is a new product out um, that's similar to this one, but instead of being um, every month that they would need to be dosed, it's a one-time injection. It's a vaccine, and it's. Interesting that you say that um, because they're, they're, to, to be technical, it's actually not a, a vaccine. It's actually a, um, a monoclonal anti- antibody, so it's a therapeutic. Okay, but it's being classified as a vaccine because it provides um, passive immunization against the virus, as opposed to a vaccine that gives more active immunization. So, okay. in other words, it gives your body something to help your body create a response in a little bit different way than the traditional vaccines um, work. Um, is that I, how the flu vaccine works too or no? So no, no, What's they're that? different. Okay, yeah. So okay. yeah, so it is a little different and it's very new and um, it has just gotten approval. And the biggest difference is that um, rather than being targeted just for premature babies in the ICU, the recommendation from the, from the studies that came out is that it can be given to all babies that are Eight, eight months of life and younger as they enter RSV season and for the, their first RSV season and then kids eight to 19 months who are entering their second RSV season that have something like heart disease or, or serious lung disease that might make them higher risk for getting sick with RSV. Okay. So what is the distinction between RSV? Is it something that you test for? Are the symptoms different oh, between oh, that's RSV a, okay, and okay, flu? Okay, great. That's a good question. So a lot of these things are similar, like right. fever, cough, runny nose. Um, the difference with RSV, especially in the littler, littler children, little infants, is it can inflame the airways, and as a result of that, it can cause them to make a wheezing sound and also have signs that almost look like what you think of with asthma, like increased work of breathing. So um, their chest might move uh, rapidly, their noses can flare out, they can make a grunting sound. And the scary thing is that they can require oxygen, and so that could be very scary for a parent yeah. and not to know that. Um, and so um, if the baby is having any signs of work of breathing, if you can get right away, to your primary care doctor, that's fine. But if it's really a severe, you know, sign of distress, that's probably when you you just go right to the hospital for that to see if the baby needs um, oxygen supplementation and admission um, overnight to the hospital. But many babies that are bigger don't need to be hospitalized. They just might have really a ton of nasal congestion. So they have a lot, a lot of nasal congestion need to aggressive suctioning of the nose, and that will help them to breathe better. There there aren't really a lot of medications for it. It's not like the flu where we have Tamiflu, mm-hmm. um, and it's not like strep where we give antibiotics. Right. So it's a little – so that's kind of a little bit more disconcerting for parents because, you know, they're seeing their kids struggle and be uncomfortable, and they want to help them. 
and we call it supportive care. So, you know, suctioning the nose, making sure the baby doesn't get dehydrated. If the baby can't take their formula or breast milk, maybe give them a little bit of Pedialyte, which is an electrolyte solution. Right. Um, you know, and obviously get going to the doctor to get advice and check on the baby and see how the baby sounds. And and there are um, certain things that we can try. Um, although it's interesting because uh, you know they're not strongly recommended. For example, like you think about asthma, you think about nebulizer treatments and mm -hmm. albuterol, and they're really not recommended for RSV, except they do work in certain patients that have it. So there are some tools that we can try. Sometimes we just do saline through the nebulizer machine. Sometimes that will help. Oh. Um, and we can try that in the office too, to sometimes you know see if it makes a difference on, on the baby after we examine the baby. Okay. Yeah, my back in the day, my nebulizer got a lot of use with all kinds of, uh, <laughs> I guess, with pneumonia, and then also I want to say just with like upper respiratory and like infections and stuff like that. So, um, so uh, can RSV be um, more advanced in older children as well, or you won't really see like them being hospitalized as much? So it's rare over two years of age, not to say that it can happen unless, of course, it's, you know, a two to three-year-old that has congenital heart disease or um, maybe very severe asthma, I see. you know, or some other underlying, you know, or immunocompromised from some other cause, mm -hmm. um, then possibly. But for a healthy child that's over two years of age, it's quite rare that they would need hospitalization. They could still get the virus. So in other words, you asked actually before about, I think maybe you touched on like testing for it. Mm -hmm. So there are, um, similar to like the COVID test that we were doing in the nose, um, there are antigen, rapid antigen tests for RSV also and PCR tests where we can swab the nose and get um, a result. Sometimes the rapid one in the office, you know, just like the rapid flu test and rapid COVID test. And that helps us to give the parents an answer um, with regard to like management, though, like you technically don't need to know that it's RSV to manage it if the patient clinically looks like it. Um, but it is, you know, sort of important to know because people just want to know and also just they don't spread it to other people and things like that. But as far as like when, you know, it helps the doctor to decide what to tell you, it doesn't really change that much. Um, but it is important if they're going to get hospitalized because we never want to put a patient that has RSV in a room with someone that doesn't. We don't want to just like we don't want to put a patient with COVID or flu in a room with someone that doesn't. So mm -hmm. for those type of purposes, we definitely test. Rapid flu is important to test if we can, if you can come in within um, 48 hours of the onset of symptoms, because then we can give Tamiflu and that can help to prevent the severity of the flu mm -hmm. so that they hopefully, you know, get back to school quicker. <laughs> yeah. Mom can mom and dad can get back to work sooner. Yeah. Things like that. Um so let's talk about the flu a little bit. I have um I I guess I get the flu maybe not every winter for sure, but like I got it and it's I got it actually right before it was like the February right before COVID. Um, mm -hmm. So technically COVID was here, but we didn't even know it was or it was like around right? March was kind of like when mm -hmm. we shut down. Um, and I like I was so, 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 so sick. Um, but I had had the flu vaccine that year. Um, you know, I get my kids the flu vaccine every year. I'm like not the best with like I'll get it some years and other years I kind of forget or whatever. Um, but. Well, one, is the flu strain different every year? Is it the same flu? Like, why is the flu, like, more prevalent every year? And um, why is it important to get the vaccine for yourself and for your kids? Yes, yeah, so all good questions. So we look um, – before the flu shot comes out, they look at the flu that happens in the southern hemisphere because, you know, the, they're, they're – 
they have flu, like for example, Australia, a different time of year than we do. Mm -hmm. And so they can try to predict what strains are going to be prevalent and they create a vaccine to prevent those strains. So for this year's flu vaccine, there's flu A and flu B. Um, and I believe there's two types of flu A um, vac- in the flu vaccine this year. The H1N1 component is new, but the other component is different. So they, so in other words, sometimes there is a slight change mm-hmm. to to the vaccine. They try to do their best at predicting what strains are going to be out there. But to your point of like, well, I got sick anyway. Yeah, that can happen. So multiple reasons. Um, one is that we may not have the exact um, version of the one that um, that that you have, but also sometimes even um, even if you do, just like even if you had an um, the COVID vaccine, you could still get COVID. Is that you would get a milder um, case of the flu. Mm-hmm. So I still recommend the vaccine because even as miserable as you felt, hypothetically, you might have felt even worse had you not had the vaccine. Um, And so that's what we we teach to say that we want to prevent serious complications, hospitalizations, um, and the vaccine is really the best tool to do that. Um, And I know that a lot of people feel that they're going to get sick from this. Like, that's what I hear all the time. Oh, I don't want the flu shot because the flu shot's going to make me sick. But it's in an... um, for the most part, we don't use the nasal flu one. You can do the flu mist, but if you get the inactivated vaccine, it's completely inactivated. So there's no live virus in that shot, so it cannot make you get sick. I think a lot of times what happens is people are maybe unbeknownst to them, they're a little under the weather, then they come in and they get the flu shot, and then the next day they you know, they feel miserable, so they think that the flu shot caused it. Probably they were going to get whatever they were going to get. Not to say that you can't get a sore arm or a little fever from the shot because there are local reactions you can get, but not the flu virus itself. Right. And when you have the flu, I mean, when you have the flu, like a severe case of the flu, it's not fun. So you really want to make sure that, um, you know, you, you're preventing any <laughs> any type of um, of downtime because that like, I don't know, it like kicks my butt. I'm not, I'm not a person that gets sick very often, but when I do, it's just like you're down for the count, like for a week, it's the worst. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, right. so no one wants to feel like that. So I feel like a little sore arm for a day or two is worth it to not get sick for for a week like the way you're describing. Right. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've been at the doctor with my kids, um, not hoping that it's something that's bacterial, but really hoping that it's something that can be treated with an antibiotic because, you know, typically, you know, they recover much faster, right, mm-hmm. than having it be viral. When you leave and you're like, oh, it's viral. I don't know how long they're going to be sick for, right? I have to take off of work for three or four days. My kid's miserable. Um, but while, but with different um, viruses, right, the flu and just respiratory viruses, um, treatment uh, in terms for kid, for children, right? Um, when they're spiking high fevers can be very, very scary. My daughter, um, we talked about this a little bit. She had pneumonia when she was little. Um, and I think, I guess, depending on the fever, the doctor will say, you know, you can do Tylenol and then in between ibuprofen to like really make sure that the fever goes down. Um, but you can't give it at the same time, right? Right. I mean, you should try to space it out a little bit. You you don't want to overdose on one or, two, you know, on either of the medications. Um, but if the fever is spiking like that 103, 104, and you just want to, and it's not coming down with just the acetaminophen, which is the Tylenol, then you can, you know, wait an hour and give a dose of the um, ibuprofen to have them overlap a little because, you know, there's an interval but between each of them. So usually like Tylenol, you can give as close together as every four hours. 
And ibuprofen, you can give every six hours apart. So you can stagger them so that they overlap a little bit. And I, and I don't recommend doing that for a prolonged period of time, usually hopefully until the fever breaks. Mm-hmm. Also, you can do a cool sponge bath, you know, um, also put a cool cloth on the back of the neck or the forehead, and that sort of helps to bring the fever down quickly. And fever isn't terrible. I mean, I know it's scary because you don't want it to get super high, but it is the body's way of saying they're fighting the infection. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just one of those things that is, you know, the, obviously the child looks a lot sicker when they're having the fever. And so the most important thing is that when the fever comes down, that they can kind of act a little bit more back to normal. Mm-hmm. You know, when they, when if they bring the fever down and they're still seeming like lethargic, then that would be obviously a reason to call the doctor to see like what, you know, what's going on. Could, yeah. it, could it be a complication? Like you mentioned, pneumonia or God forbid meningitis or something more serious. Right. Like that. Pneumonia, you don't, it, that's a progression of an, an infection, right? Are there different types of pneumonia? So there's different types of pneumonia. You mentioned like you know, there's even viral pneumonia and oh, I didn't um, know that. yeah, and bacterial pneumonia. There's, I mean, fungal, which is very rare. Okay. But um, and then there's different types of ba- within the bacterial pneumonia, different types of um, you know, the more, most common um, bugs that cause like common things like ear infections um, are similar to the ones that cause like sinus infections and sometimes can also cause pneumonia. So, um, but we do have um, some vaccines to help with those. So like the pneumococcal vaccine, for example, um, oh. which is um, Prevnar uh, is the brand of one of them, but pneumococcal conjugate vaccine can help um, prevent um, and has definitely decreased the incidence of serious um, bacterial infections that we've had since since it launched years ago. But um, and there's actually going to be an um, there's a newer version that came out for adults and is going to be released soon for kids too. Actually, technically it was approved, but I just don't have it in my office yet per se. Okay. So the definition of pneumonia is then like is it inflammation of the lungs or is it an infection of the lungs? Well, it it, it could be both, right? Okay. So as a result of the infection, you can have. Um, the immune system sends its cells to fight the infection, which then can cause inflammation. Sometimes there can be fluid even in the lungs. Sometimes uh, they can have a pleural effusion, which is like a complication of pneumonia. Sometimes if it's really bad, they can even get an abscess in mm-hmm. the lung, like which is a collection of like pus in the lung, mm-hmm. um, an empyema. Um, you know, but it is um, it is caused by an infection that then causes this immune response, which can lead to um, sometimes even that wheezy sound, just like we were describing with RSV. Sometimes they can have, you know, rattling in the chest too um, that you, the doctor can hear when they listen. And then sometimes we'll get a chest X-ray. Uh, it is a clinical diagnosis, but sometimes we will get a chest X-ray to confirm it, especially if we're worried. Like, say we clinically, I think your child has pneumonia. I don't like the way that they, you know, the child sounds, fever, cough, et cetera. I listen to the lungs and I'm like, oh, this sounds like it could be pneumonia. So I give you the prescription for the antibiotic. You call me two days later, three days later, really no change or wor- or, or worsening. Then I may say, oh, let's get a chest x-ray, make sure it's not, you know, getting uh, a secondary complication from the pneumonia. Okay. Oh. Um, we also talked a little bit about strep. Um, my son, like clockwork every year gets strep once a year. <laughs> I don't know why he just always does like it's just since he was little. Um, but I guess not enough where it was ever like where the doctor said that like they needed to, you know, talk about having his tonsils mm-hmm. taken out. Um, is that like a thing that still happens? Cause I remember when I was growing up, I had a lot of friends, like at least three of them that had their tonsils taken out because they had like perpetual throat issues, right? Um, But is that not as common anymore? And um, is it only because you get like a series of strep repeatedly or are there other things that like contribute to that? Yeah. So, 
you're right. I think that um, years ago that they were quicker to take the tonsils out um, than they are now. And I think a lot, there's probably multiple factors. One of, one of them for sure is the fact that we have learned that the tonsils are actually protective and part of the immune system. So if we don't need to take them out, we don't. However, if a child is having recurrent episodes of strep, usually multiple in the same year, sometimes we can count like a certain amount in one year and another criteria, a certain amount over two years period of time, then your pediatrician might send you to the ear, nose, throat doctor to say, um, you know, see if this child should get them out. The other sometimes thing that happens is uh, a breathing issue. So um, if a child is having snoring at night, um, they may get their tonsils taken out for that if they have sleep apnea. But again, um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So it's a different, it's not an infectious cause. Um, so there are some people that just have larger sized tonsils to begin with. And also it's not always the same, but it can also be associated with children that are obese too, but you don't, you know, and not everybody that snores has sleep apnea. So, oh. but a lot of times, um, one of the things that they'll do now, if it is a child that has those symptoms and also may also may or may not have recurrent throat infections, a lot of times they will get checked for that before they have surgery because that they want to prevent that complication after the anesthesia. So just interesting. another interesting little thing. But <laughs> All the things. <laughs> I have so many things we think about. And I don't know. Um, uh, so we talked a lot about viruses and um, and illnesses, and this is the time of year that it kind of you know you, you'll start to see um, more of that, but also other um, reasons, right? That moms are, and dads are making appointments for their child to be seen. Um, what are some of uh, some you know we talked a little bit about um, mental health awareness in um, teens, tweens, and I'm sure even elementary school kids. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know we certainly have been seeing it a lot. Um, on the, on the news, but also really in the front lines in the offices, primary care providers, um, even prior to COVID, but I think COVID obviously having um, everyone, you know, home for all that time and then going re back into school. And, um, and then again, you know, the, the rise of technology and, and how things are not the way they used to be. Sure. Um, back in the day when someone did some sort, sort of silly thing at school, we kind of laughed about it and then it was forgotten. Now um, someone catches it on camera, they post it, it goes viral and everyone's, you know, you know, remembering what happened to this, you know, child. So just being aware of um, different different forms of, of mental illness that can take place uh, in school. Kids can be bullying, you know, not just in person, but also cyber bullying on the, on the, on the, um, on, online. And also, um, you know, so if your child does seem like they're a little off uh, to you, you know, just to talk to them. And if you um, need your pediatrician to help also, you can bring them to talk to see if anything's changed with, with regard to their mood. Um, uh, as well as, you know, if there's any issues in school learning, like and I think we talked a little bit about, like ADHD is another thing that commonly comes in through um, the school might notice it and bring it to the parents' attention. Oh, why don't you talk to your pediatrician? I think your child is, you know, not focusing or is always standing up in class and yeah. interrupting and things like that, um, that we can at least sort of navigate some of the screening tools with you and then help, you know, you get a more further diagnosis if needed outside our office. Uh, okay. So when um, my, so my son's 19, but when he was in I guess when he was in third grade, he was diagnosed with ADD, and his pediatrician did perform the diagnosis. I guess like did some screening, like some testing and stuff like that. Um, and we and primarily worked with 
her up until and then like in in conjunction with the school and like you know different resources that were made available to um like the child study team and just you know kinds of all different uh, modifications that were made to him you know th over the years and it was definitely a challenging um uh, situation but one that many parents um experience and um is that something that so you you know you make an appointment with the pediatrician how does it work now um where they're you know for screening purposes and like what where do they go from there if they are diagnosed yeah so i think um you know it's it again it could be multifactorial it's more common once they hit school age i think like kids under five it's really hard to make the diagnosis of adhd mm -hmm. um even in the little ones sometimes we can make it, um, it does have to occur in two settings, not shouldn't just be happening at home, these behaviors, or just happening at school, it should be happening in both settings. And there are um, a few screening tools that we can use in the office, some that are more like overly, like encompass multiple things, not just that. And then there's um, some tools that are specific for example, it's called one of them is called the Vanderbilt tool, and that's more specific for ADHD. And so that could be filled out by the parents and by the teachers and then bring it to us. And we can score it. And that gives us an idea if they score a certain way and plus everything else in the history, right, that, that we hear about what's going on. We can kind of pretty much make the d diagnosis that way. And then depending upon how the family wants to navigate, obviously, we always encourage them to get a child study team evaluation done at school right. um, to see if they qualify for services, because that does make a huge difference. Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, there, there's definitely a lot to it. I would love to even have a separate podcast to talk about um, just all the resources that are available and just the different. Um, I'm sure that there's a, a been probably a lot more advancements, too, since, you know, I was going through it with my son, which is, you know, a, a long time ago now. Um, but a, a lot of questions and there's a lot of um you know, I'm sure there's a lot of parents that are kind of like frustrated because homework time with some, you know, when usually when you have a child with ADD and ADHD is um, not a fun time of night, or at least it wasn't for <laughs> me. <laughs> so um, I can definitely relate to anyone that, um, you know, that is, is struggling with that right now. Um, let's go back a little bit to uh, mental health. You, you mentioned, um, you know, uh, changes in mood. What are the guidelines um, for screen time right now? And what do you advise parents? Um, because I think a lot of it, like you said, is stemmed from, um, you know, the screens, what they see, what they, um, you know, we say, I, my friends and I say all the time when we were kids, you know, anything that happened at school stayed at school. Now it carries over to social media at home after school. And um, not only are they seeing, you know, things within with their peer group right um but also outside of that right everything that who they follow and different apps and everything there's so much to it we could also talk about that could totally <laughs> be a different podcast um which i'd love to explore but um you know what are like the i guess the guidelines right now for for parents i mean you know certainly for the little ones um you know we, we always say no no screen but we're talking about like school age kids so i mean ideally you know, it's sort of unrealistic, like the goal of like no more than two hours a day that's not schoolwork related. OK, like okay. obviously school screens, I mean, sort of is the goal, especially when we're talking about um, kids that also might need to be more active because they're like overweight. So we try to give, you know, we have this little mnemonic five, two, one, zero, like five fruits and vegetables a day, um, no more than two hours of screen time, not counting schoolwork, okay. uh, one hour of dedicated physical activity and zero sugary drinks, like zero, you know, sodas and juices and things like that. And so I think, you know, keeping to that, you know, general, 
you know, amount of time. I know it's it is kind of becoming really challenging to 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 keep it to, to the two hours. But that would be a nice you know goal, I think, if you could, or a little bit, even if you have to go a little bit over that. And also being conscious of what they're looking at. Like you mentioned, there are some apps, and now, you know, um, like. TikTok, I don't even know how old. I think some of the kids can get on younger than they really should be able to. Um, I know that's more of a teenager um, app, but, you know, they see some silly things that are on there and sometimes they'll try to imitate them. Yes, know? like the, so. we, the Tide yeah, Challenge. We're talking about, yeah. yeah, and um, yeah, so I think it's, you know, it just comes down to monitoring what your kids are looking yeah. at and saying on top of, you know, what apps they have and, you know, what they're, what they're doing, because uh, I know it's hard, believe me, I, I work, you know, a lot. And my daughter, for the most part is she's mostly like with me unless she's now at school, back at school. But, um, you know, like I try to do my best to make sure that like she's not on the screens too much and that when she is, it's like, you know, what are you doing? Even some of these games, it's like they, you know, they, they, you think they downloaded an app, but it's like, has like a chat with like people that, you know, they don't, you know, whatever, like, oh, wow. oh yeah, just like a silly, like you would think it was like a candy crush type game. And all of a sudden it's like, you a know, message. she's like, well, like you can like build a team. Like, do you want to be on my team and stuff? So it's just, I'm like, what, how did this, you know, so you have to really pay attention. <laughs> right. Because, because that's actually one of the things I do tell parents is that, you know, there are adults that are, it's scary that yes. can pretend to be kids. Totally. And it's just like what you're talking about. They could go on that Candy Crush app that your daughter's on and say that they're also eight years old yep. and that, but they're really not. Yes. So, yeah. you know. No, you really have to. So, I mean, that's I, really I'm, scary. I am trying to, to organize a podcast to talk about like the, the, um, what to know about like internet safety for children because it's like there's some scary stuff out there and we really have to be vigilant and make sure that we are um, like keeping an eye on things and you know not you don't want to you know be like the crazy overprotective parent but I think it's better to be safe than sorry when it when it comes to anything on on the, the iPads and the phones and all of that. So, um, but, but right. Um, right. And remind, super important. Yeah. And reminding them that like, you know, once it's out there, it's out there. I think a lot of times the, especially the teenagers, cause they're like feisty, right. They'll say, Oh, it like Snapchat, it disappears, but there is always a way for totally. it to be traced. And so just remember they're not thinking about like when they're adults, right. Like when they're forming careers and things, but like a lot of jobs and places, right, will do searches before they hire you. So if they find something out there about you, so that's what we try to teach, you know, our children is to like be really mindful about what you're posting and, you know. Oh, totally. You know, even like, you know, when you did my bio, like one of my jobs is being in charge of a group of medical students. And like when we talk to them too about entering the hospital, you know, obviously HIPAA protecting patient information, but it's also like presenting yourself well when you're outside, like you're now, you know, you, you are represent. representing, you yeah. know, our hospital yeah. and, you know, yeah. and be mindful of that and right. for the residents too. So it's really important to, to remember, like, you know, not to say that you're not allowed to have fun outside of work, but just being conscious of like what you're doing and what you're saying. And yeah. Like that. Oh, really? It's so important. Um, another thing that comes with back to school is back to extracurricular activities um, with and sports. Um, I'm sure that you see all kinds of um, sports related injuries in your office. Um, what are some preventative measures we talked about um, wearing a cup, wearing obviously helmets, um, even if you're not you know, in sports, but just um, helmets for, you know, for bike riding oh, right. and, yeah, and all that. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. Quad, quads and right. bike quads, rides. Right. Right. I don't have that at my house. but my, I don't yeah. have it at my house, but I hear, <laughs> I hear about it sometimes in the office. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously making sure they wear helmets, like you said, even for bike riding um, was really important because head injuries are serious and we want to um, 
obviously protect our, our, our brains as much as possible. Um, and all the pads that you have to wear for, you know, football and baseball. And like you mentioned, the cup is important for the boys because they need to protect their um, their genital area because if they get hit there, sometimes um, they can have a twisting of the testicle, which is called testicular torsion. And that's really an acute emergency that needs immediate medical attention because it needs to be corrected. So I always tell my when I'm counseling the boys in, in the office that are um, playing sports uh, or even, in, you know, in general, but certainly in a sport that they could potentially get hit there just to not wait and not tell their parents that they have pain there just to tell them right right away. Okay. So, um, any, um, obviously, you know, staying hydrated, um, oh, yes. you know, is, yes. is very important, super important. Um, cause the sports, you know, it's still hot out, right? So if we're on this, it's 90 degrees and we're playing <laughs> soccer. Um, anything else you tell parents, um, just, you know, to stay safe yeah. while, while they're, uh, while they're getting into all these activities. Yeah. So definitely, like you said, keeping the water bottles with them sometimes, you know, but be careful with, um, you know, some of the uh, electrolyte drinks are, are okay, but the ones that have, you know, caffeine and then those yeah. energy drinks. We were just talking about that, that the other day because of the, um, for heart like issues, right? Right. They, um, like they're like really marketed towards kids. Like a lot of these energy drinks that yeah. they're like are loaded with caffeine and, um, it can be very dangerous. Yeah. There is actually, I read something, you know, similar to what happened with, um, asking the FDA to put, um, halting on like the sale of electronic cigarettes. Okay. Um, and, and the things that the vaping because they were marketed with the flavors to kids that there may be now this uh, idea uh, about this as well oh interesting yeah. because they couldn't have like what is what actually happens they have like a um like can they have a heart attack or like how well, does that work? Uh, okay well so that's <laughs> well i mean theoretically i guess um depending upon if they have an underlying thing but the fact that it could definitely cause an arrhythmia potentially with the rapid heart rate with the um depending because some of them have quite a lot i believe yeah caffeine in mm -hmm. them and um the kids are thinking that they're just like a safe drink and that's the thing and like you said they're being marketed to kids so um you know so i think that's still to be determined what's going to happen with that but yes that that would be the the scariest thing that i would worry about would be like an irregular heart rate and I mean, in an extreme case, maybe I don't know. I don't know how often they would have coronary artery disease to have a heart heart attack per se, but definitely an arrhythmia, which can also lead to the heart stopping, depending on how fast it goes, which okay. could be scary too. Yeah, um, I also read that there is some preventative measures for kids that are, I guess, maybe playing football and different sports to be screened, um, do different heart screenings. Why is that? Okay, so that is part of when the children come to the office for a sports physical, we do ask um, the parents fill out a questionnaire. And a lot of the questions are trying to establish, is there a family history of sudden cardiac death? Um, and if they do have red flags in that department, or if the child themselves says that they're feeling faint with exercise, dizziness, uh, chest pain, um, then we may want to refer them a lot of times in this case to the cardiologist before we as the primary care doctor clear them to make sure they don't have um, an abnormality in the heart. Because some of the some of the abnormalities, when you hear about, you know, um, what happened, you know, even in the NFL, mm -hmm. right? Um, that was a different thing. But there is um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is something that they don't always have a heart murmur. So you, your doctor may or may not hear the heart murmur. And they also may not have symptoms. And so that's one of the things that like, you know, if there is a family history, we would want to get them cleared by the heart doctor first. Interesting.
Okay. Um, yeah, I read something about it recently and that they were, you know, I guess trying to create more awareness for, um, for, for screening children. But is it, it's not a big part of the population that like has... Co- correct. Right. Okay. No, right. It's not like every kid that... Right. And because otherwise, because we've always sort of said, well, why don't they just get like an EKG and echocardiogram on every kid then so right. that we would just find every kid. But I guess that like to your point where the incidence is low enough that I guess there is not, there it hasn't been given as a formal recommendation for us to screen every kid with that level of screening, we just do more of like the physical exam, asking the history questions, and then if any red flags come up, send those kids to the heart doctor to get seen. Okay. Um, speaking of screenings, um, I'm, th- I'm thinking back to all the screenings that we had is students um, in school, right, with the school nurse. Um, I'm, I'm, I assume that there's been a huge uptick in um, kids who need to go to the eye doctor for um, all the screen time that they have, or am I, am I wrong on that? Uh, no, I mean, that's that's interesting. I mean, we do, um, as part of the well visit, we do like just the eye chart in, in the office. Mm-hmm. And then if they fail that, then we obviously send them to the eye doctor. Or if the parents are come and say, hey, you know, I see my child is like literally standing in front of the television or the teacher saying that they can't see the board then. Um, but yeah, no, I, it's funny. I've never like sort of looked into like the exact incidence to see if it's increasing. But definitely, um, I think we're going to have probably over the long term in the future, some sort of effects for all of us on our on our eyes, both with the... Um, I know it's affected me for sure, but yeah. um, I always had great eyesight. But then, like, ever since I started spending so much time on a laptop and, like, on screens, like, for work, I just feel like my eyes are always strained. Um, but my daughter, too, like, same thing. She's, um, you know, she goes to the eye doctor now and, you know, it's really just, like, wears glasses for reading. She's not very good about wearing them. Um, but I think, like, when we were there, they were talking about how it's, like, is it myopia, right? That's mm-hmm. the... Yeah. So um, that they see a lot more, it's much more prevalent in kids because of the screen time. So, um, and then also I want to ask you about um, scoliosis. Um, first, first grade, you know, they screen in school at what age? So, you know, usually I would, I'm not sure exactly if, if every school follows, you know, around nine years of age would be on the younger end. Um, sometimes in our office, I'll, I'll look at them even younger than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the school... School nurse, usually it's definitely by middle school for sure, but mm-hmm. they could theoretically start screening at the end of, like, you know, the end of elementary, I guess. Okay. Do yeah. um, It's not genetic, right, scoliosis? Well, so, in some cases it is, but the um, there's adolescent idiopathic scoliosis, which you know, d- not necessarily is coming from the family, but, um, you know, it could be also related to their posture, oh. you know, to how they're... So I always tell them not to carry the backpack on one shoulder, try to balance it on both shoulders. Um, And, um, you know, if they fail the screen in the office, then sometimes we'll get an x-ray. And sometimes if they're having symptoms, we'll also send them to the orthopedic, the bone doctor to get Mm -hmm. checked. Um, Do they still brace kids? So it has to be pretty severe for bracing and then super severe for surgery. Yeah, so. I had it actually. I had a spinal fusion when I was 16, okay. so, but yeah. I didn't, I was never braced. Um, yeah. And I was, that was 25 years ago. So um, I'm curious if 
they brace the way that they used to if the braces have made advancements and stuff yeah, like that. I'm, I know it's very, it's very, it's very uncommon. But um, when I was 16, I had like a 45 degree curve in my spine. So oh, wow. yeah, so I had to have the um, the spinal fusion, which was ter- like a terrible experience. But I always ask about, you know, screenings and just, um, you know, making people like more aware because it was a terrible thing to go through for sure as yeah. a child. And, yeah, and, I can't imagine because, you know, <laughs> you have to wear the brace for almost like the whole day. So yep. it's could be, you know, uncomfortable yeah. for the kids. Um, but it is important to, if they do need it, maybe you can prevent a surgery if you get the bracing early enough. So in that case, it's, I guess, sort of a good thing, although it's uncomfortable. Yeah. But, I always tell like my but, daughter, I'm like, sit up straight, you know, like the posture. And she's like, oh my gosh. I'm like, it's you, it's this, you know, you don't want to ever have to go through that. So, um, but it's, you know, the kids like always telling them what to do and, Hopefully they retain a little bit and listen and not wear the backpack on the one side because I was definitely guilty of that (laughs) for sure as a kid. Um, We talked a little bit about um, vaccines in general. So I think, you know, I mean, I've always brought my daughter like just on around her birthday every year to the doctor. Um, But what are, you know, as the kids get older, um, what are some like reminders of uh, vaccines that they should be getting outside of, you know, flu and just, um, you know, viral vaccines? Yeah. So the routine, you know, part of the routine childhood immunization. So, you know, when we're talking about school, kindergarten, so there's um, so it's interesting because those vaccines can be given as young as four years. Usually it's like four to six years. But so if they hadn't gotten it when they were four, if you're signing them up for kindergarten, you will once you bring those papers and they're going to say you got to see the doctor. So there's two boosters. that they get there. Uh, so it's a DTaP and polio, which you could give in one one injection, and then MMR, which is measles, mumps, rubella, and varicella, which is chickenpox in the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's for kindergarten. And then other than the yearly ones you're mentioning, the next set of boosters come about at 11 years old when they're about to enter sixth grade or middle school, um, depending upon some schools, right? Or now it's all different, right? Some are K through six, some are six through eight. Yeah, they're all I different. Know, all, but, but sixth grade and 11 years, there's another set of boosters, which is a, a booster to the tetanus shot, which also has protection against pertussis, which causes whooping cough. And we give that in conjunction with a meningitis vaccine. And then we also introduce the human papillomavirus HPV vaccine. The HPV one is not required for school, but mm-hmm. it's you know strongly recommended as a vaccine to prevent cancer. Um, and so uh, so we, we can give it, actually, you could give that one as young as nine, but we sometimes will give it at, introduce at the 11 year visit. And then there's no other sort of routine ones again until 16 years of age. Mm-hmm. And then from 16 to 18, which is the range, you get a booster from your sixth grade meningitis shot that you got back when you were 11. And then we are recommending the uh, meningococcal B vaccine, which is another meningitis shot to prevent the B strain of, of, of the meningococcal bacteria, because that's the serotype that was found actually in Rutgers that had an outbreak a few years back. Um, and, and that one is not in the initial one that they get when they're in sixth grade. So there's like two separate meningitis shots. Um, and then uh, again, if they haven't gotten the HPV, I, 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 I advise that again. And then, um, and then you know, then they're then they're at college <laughs> at eighteen if they go to college. Not everybody, you know, but right. they're out of out of traditional school. I guess. Do you see a lot of your patients through college? So um, we will see them in our offices. Um, usually, our practices will be um, through until they turn like twenty two, basically. Okay. Like, 
I could see like a lot of guys just being like, I'll just go, like whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like keep going till they're like, yeah. oh, actually my son said that to me recently. He's like, should I just go to like a regular doctor now or what do I do? I'm like, well, I think you can do either. It doesn't matter. It, I was just going to say, <laughs> it's right. It's totally whatever they want. I mean, some pediatric practices, I guess, depending upon their office, like once they hit 18, maybe they say, hey, it's time. You're an adult now. Go see the adult doctor. Um, we've traditionally in our offices let them stay like through basically most of, you know, like I said, the 21 to 22, although sometimes, you know, the child, like you said, well, they're technically an adult then, right? They, they will, they'll find a, an adult doctor by then. So got it. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much. This has been incredibly Mm -hmm. helpful, um, information. There's a lot uh, that we, (laughs) that we threw out, um, with all the things that are back to school. It's back to, you know, just making sure that we're taking good care of our bodies and staying healthy and, you know, um, and, and being well yes. and get oh and getting sleep oh we should even <laughs> we mention that right yeah with all oh the screens too right yeah, yeah no. cutting off the screens before bedtime getting off right. the screen okay yes no more <laughs> screens at bedtime I'm pretty I've I don't know I've been better about that depends on the day I guess but um uh but yes sleep is more more important what would you say is like actually the average amount of sleep that like a like elementary school age child should have they should they should really probably have 10 to 12 hours 10 to 12 yeah and then the older teens you could maybe get you know eight to ten but oh really okay but yeah but 10 to 12 for those younger kids for sure okay it's good to know well, so. thank you again. Um, uh, we are going to link um, all the information where to find Dr. Wallach on um, on anything listed here. So if you um, scroll down, you can see the link to Hackensack Meridian Children's Health. Um, and any resources that we mentioned will also be linked there. Um, coming up this fall, make sure to check out the Mammoth Moms Back to School Guide. We have lots of extracurricular activities listed in there, our tutoring um tutoring services in the area. We also have our preschool and private school guide coming out in the next few weeks. So look for that soon. Um, uh, a salon and spa guide. We do one every year. Um, we're bringing it a little bit earlier this year because, um, you know, by the time October hits, it's basically the holidays and all things that are, you know, you're juggling a lot. So you want to make sure you want to get those appointments in now and go get a f- nice facial and take some time for yourself because the kids went back to school <laughs> before everyone gets sick <laughs> um, and uh, and schedule those appointments for hair and all the fun spas that are in the area as well. Um, and we also have our fall fun guide coming out as well. Um, we'll have lists of uh, pumpkin picking, where to go apple picking, where um, all the fun events are happening and speaking of events um, coming soon. Uh, make sure that you're registered for our uh, uh, fall festival here at Bellworks, the Mammoth Moms Fall Festival. Um, is Sunday, October 22nd. We have all kinds of fun things happening. Our touch a truck. We have um, over about 100 vendors that we'll have that day. We also have local um, uh, food. Um, we'll have Barbella open and um, a whole indoor kid zone with lots of new activities and fun things to do for um, Halloween. It's like a week before Halloween. So it's basically like that. It's like the kickoff to the holidays, right? We'll have all kinds of Halloween and fall f- um, festivities. And then um, you can actually shop early for the holidays. We'll have some cool vendors there. So make sure to check it out. We can't wait to see you there and enjoy all things happening for back to school this September. Thanks, guys.